if you're not helping the world be better, people aren't on board. Like they said, your goal has to make the world better and you have to make progress to it. Then they have to see how they're able to contribute to that. That's Duncan Anderson, the co-founder of Adrolo, and this is Wild Hearts. <laughs> Welcome back to season three of Wild Hearts. I'm your host, Mason Yates, and this is the podcast dedicated to revealing the secrets from the founders looking to change the world. So today I'll be interviewing Duncan Anderson, the co-founder and co-CEO of Adrolo, a business that exists to improve humanity by improving education. So Duncan really is the epitome of a learn-it-all and you'll quickly see what I mean. This episode is literally packed with insights. I mean, it ranges from the cycle of learning, how kids can discover a love for learning, what the heck is metacognition, how Duncan thinks about building Adrolo's products and so much more. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Duncan. If you can only give me one type of book to read for the rest of my life, it would be biographies. To me, they're often the most multifaceted. Some books, there's like a TED talk that went well, and then there's someone who gave them an offer and they string out a 15 minute TED talk to an eight hour book. Yep. And it's like, no, nah, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> But then biographies done well, that every minute is jam-packed. And so I think I've learned more from biographies than anything else. And if I had to only be able to read one thing, one category of book, it would be biographies. Yeah. What, okay. What, what are the top three? Carnegie, David Northsaw, Shoe Dog, Phil Knight. What else? I Built the Modern World by Ford. That'd be probably the three. So Carnegie, Northsaw, I Built the Modern World by Ford and Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. I mean, this is off the top of my head. Like I would have read hundreds of biographies. And I wasn't going to start with that, mm. but I'm going to include that in the episode yeah. because that's a, actually a beautiful intro to you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, everyone, and welcome, Duncan. I'm super excited because you have one of the best blogs on the internet by far. Thank you. I've been a religious reader since you started in like 2019. Mm. Why did you start writing the blog? It's called cloud streaks as in the clouds in the sky and a streak.com mainly because it didn't mean anything and I could get the URL for free or like $8 a minimum <laughs> price. Yeah. Yeah. What had happened is that I had slowly Ed Roller was growing the company I'm a co-founder and co-CEO of. And we got to the point where I had seven direct reports and I was saying the same thing sometimes seven times. And I thought that I would win back time because I was an efficiency monster at that point. And I've realized that you also need to be able to not do efficiency all day, every day. But I didn't know that seven years ago. Then I'd write it because I'd save time. And what I realized is that when I was writing it, I'd sometimes not just write it you know, down, I'd actually say it better. And not to say it better, I'd actually develop my thoughts. And so I didn't realize that that's what writing could be. I just thought it was basically taking an imprint of your head and putting it on paper or in an email. And so I realized that writing was this incredibly powerful tool to say things better and to develop thought. And so then I started writing systematically. So each week at Edrolo in the sort of main teams, I mean, you need to write a weekly learning. And this is helping you develop your writing skills, but also hopefully sharing something with other people that they can incorporate into what they're doing. Mm. So this was the beginning. And then basically I was writing these blogs systematically internally to solve problems. And that had been happening for a number of years. And I felt... I should publish some of them externally because I gained so much from reading other people's blogs or listening to podcasts or reading books. And it felt very selfish just to take from others and to not put back to allow others to, if they found value, access it. So that's kind of where it came from. So I started writing many years before the blog externally. I just felt that I should be trying to give back. Yeah, I get that. And one of the unique things about the blog is the structure. Mm. Can you share why you've chosen that structure and how it's helped you to develop your thinking? 
So the, the blog is written to have maximum density and maximum resolution. So it is not necessarily written to be an easy read. They're written for internal Edrollo purposes. So I literally write them to share internally with people to help level Edrollo up. And CloudStrix, the blog is on running a business. There are blogs internally on the product which aren't published externally. And so what I was trying to do is develop English in new ways. So for instance, you'll see that they're all indented. So there's like dot points, there's equations, there's taxonomies, there's visuals. And so I was trying to develop new sort of vectors of English which allow you to articulate self in ways that you otherwise wouldn't be able to and therefore say something you wouldn't be able to say. Mm. And so this has fundamentally changed the way that communication occurs in Ed Rollo. So almost everything is the outcome of human thought or knowledge. Knowledge and thought to me are synonymous. If you can level up thought slash knowledge, then what you can do levels up. And so if you can only write in words you know, in order, you can't write words in a structured three-dimensional puzzle or words with a taxonomy or words with an equation or a visual, you kind of have less tools with which you can develop thought. So all these things are new tools. If you've got one tool, you know, you're not going to be able to build much. If you've got 10 tools, you're going to be able to build a lot more. So what I've been trying to develop is many tools for English that allow you to have a new emergent possibility set of what to communicate. Mm. And why is a taxonomy helpful? And like, what is it? Like, a lot of people don't even know what that would be. Yeah, okay. So one of the most famous taxonomies in education is Bloom's taxonomy. And so this is different levels of learning. So remember, understand, apply, analyze, evaluate, create. So it's kind of going from sort of low order learning someone else or something to using it to create something new. Normally, you just start at like level negative one, like how to do this badly, level zero, break even, one, two, three, four. And what you sort of learn through trying to map things out is ways to level up. So the way of making a taxonomy normally teaches you how to level up. So as an example, writing. Can you only write with words? Okay, can you write with words and indentations? So you can see the substructure of different things. So this is nested under that. Okay, can you write also with an equation? So pain plus reflection equals progress. Okay, can you write with a taxonomy? So this is level, you know, one is just words. Level two is structure. Level three is equation. Level four is also with a taxonomy. Level five is the visual. So then, okay, what comes after that? Okay, well, how do you think about making this engaging? So to me, yeah, it's just a way to create levels in whatever space you're in is a taxonomy. Mm. And were you inspired by Ray Dalio? I just heard an equation taken from him. Definitely. Have you used his book as an inspiration? Definitely. So he wrote the first version of this, I think in 2009, which is Principles. Mm. As at that time, I was working at a hedge fund. And if you're working at a hedge fund and you don't know who Ray Dalio is, I don't know if you're doing a very good job. <laughs> and so it was about a 60-page document, just black text on white pages. And it was just like principle, 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 principle. And it's like one or two sentences. And some of them were in equations. And then he got around to writing the book Principles, I think in 2017 or right thereabouts, 18. Yeah. And so I was aware of who he was and part of the ways that he thought and the concept of Bridgewater and building equations to map like the world. So going and backdating it through time and giving them signals with which they could calibrate against. A large part of that is part of the inspiration as you sort of aware of how we think about making content. So at, at Rollo, I say we are artists, scientists. Artists make beautiful things. Scientists know how they make things. You want to make repeatable beauty. Mm. And so if you're trying to do that, you need a system, which we sort of refer to as content technology, which is language, recipe, and ideas, which you can use to meta-describe or the metacognition of what you're doing. So yeah, I think that what Radio has built is effectively a parallel system 
to understand the economy, which he can calibrate versus what's in his mind. And then they can use the two of them to hopefully make better decisions than if it was just one by themselves. So some funds are pure quant and some funds are pure just person thinking and Bridgewater is like a combination and the two of them together should be emergent. One plus one is, you know, three or whatever. I love that. And we'll jump into the product a little later on, but you just said metacognition. Yeah. What the hell is that? <laughs> so you do not learn from your experiences. You learn from reflecting on your experiences. John Dewey, who was a sort of eminent educator. I think that quotes from like 1912. Effectively, the better you can explain what you've done, normally the better you understand what you've done. The better you understand what you've done, the better you can improve what you've done. Mm. So some metacognition is very, very easy to understand and access and some is very, very difficult. Does that help or is that like not a good explanation? I think that's got us to break even. <laughs> Perhaps take a step further by showing how metacognition has been playing out in your blog. And I mean, even zooming out the purpose of the blog. Yeah. So, well, the purpose of the blog is to try to help improve Ed Roller. So if I want to try to improve something, I will systematically write about it on a regular basis. So to me, each of the blogs isn't necessarily referring to one instance. It's a idea or a piece of a tool, mental tool, metacognition, which you can apply hopefully many, many times over. So it's describing something in a way that hopefully you can understand that thing better and the better you can describe it, then the more you can improve it. And then you can apply it in multiple places. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, everything you look at is the outcome of human thought, whether it's the food you're eating or the table or, or the computer, right? If you can get better at human thought, then you can get better at everything. It's the most upstream version of everything. And basically, metacognition is your ability to describe thought. The better you are at metacognition, the better you are at understanding what you're making. And the better you are at understanding, the better you are improving. So it's like the universal tool to get better at anything or to better at thinking mm. and everything is downstream of thinking. So yeah, I don't know if that helps either. It definitely does. It definitely does. To to exist effectively, you need to, you need to be able to write. Yes. Well, it used to be that might was right, but now it's the mind that matters. And so, yeah, there are still some, you know, jobs which are very physical, but you know, they're slowly going away. So if your job is knowledge work, which is increasing percentage of jobs, and if your job is non-repetitive, so the machines are replacing all the repetitive ones, then I'm going to argue either all skills are equal or all skills aren't equal. I don't think they're all equal. Well, the most important one conceivably is the skill of thinking. And the way to measure that is metacognition. So how well can you describe something you have done in the past? Mm. And that's going to enable you to level up better than if you can't describe it. Mm. And so 10% of one's week should be spent reflecting. And so that might only be like four hours as an example, so one's work week. But most people, that is an incredibly large amount of time and they don't even know how to do it. And so I think it's better if you can see others doing it. I was very bad at it 10 years ago and I think I'm a lot better. So yeah. There's so many roads we can go down. Yeah. <laughs> so as a founder, mm. you just mentioned that not all skills are equal. No. Putting your founder hat on, what have been, I guess, the top three skills that perhaps over the last few years as you've been scaling the company that you've really had to nail down and improve on? Look, there's many different roles. So all of them, you know, could be very important. You know, this is just what comes to mind, not necessarily some very considered thing, but they say progress solves all known problems. You need to find a way that you are helping improve the world or increase the scope and scale of consciousness. And that needs to be really well understood. So in the case of Ed Roller, that's improving education. And then you need to find a way which you can believe you can do that. And so effectively, you then make progress in that and you communicate how you're making progress and how you're learning from previous things. And if that's okay, then I think it's have a chance of having the company working. But it doesn't matter if you're 
everyone's getting paid well and you've got some like nice offside or whatever. <laughs> if you're not helping the world be better, people aren't on board. Like they said, your goal has to make the world better and you have to be making progress to it. Then they have to see how they're able to contribute to that. So those are like the foundational elements. Upon that foundation, you can build a positive sum ecosystem where people come and like working, et cetera. But if you don't have those, I don't think anything else really matters. Mm. And so to me, there need to be people who that is their core focus, not their only focus, their core focus. And so I like to believe that we understand the problem of improving education significantly better than we used to, and that we have far more sophisticated ways to help with that. And so to me, the main focus is figuring out how to improve education and how we can helpfully have each unit of time give more improvement than it was in the past. So we're getting better at what we're doing. And the main way for that is building product, going and looking at it in schools and you know watching teachers and students using it, and then writing what you have seen and then others writing what they have seen and then seeing looking at what they've written and what you've seen and seeing how they're different mm. <laughs> and then trying to understand the inconsistencies between what you've seen and others have seen and then munging that together into the proposal for what to do next. Yeah, I hope that makes some sense. It does. And on that note, there is the truth of what you've seen. And then there's the assumptions that we're all making when we think we're seeing something. Mm. How do you remove the, I think you've got a blog post, I'm going to steal the title of it, the distortions of our ego in those assumptions? Mm. There's the, what you see, which is true, what you see that is distorted, which is an ego distortion, and what you don't see, which is a blind spot. And my typical rule of thumb is that it's third, third, third. One third of what you're seeing is fair and right. One third is there, but distorted materially from what it is. And one third you're missing. Mm. And so when you're doing observations or user testing, what you're looking for is what you have not yet seen. If you walk out and you're just confirmed some things, that's not good. How do you find what you can't see? Well, this is the difficult part. You can't ask questions <laughs> for it. And so I think naturally wired into you is confirmation bias. So otherwise you have to have tried to lean against it, which I call anti-confirmation bias. So the only way that you have to try to be neutral is to realize that you are trying to confirm the things that you put forward and to try to see where they work. So you have to lean out against an anti-confirmation bias and see why it won't work. And so what I ask people is, what have you seen that you know now that you did not know at the beginning? There's no, okay, well, we've seen this thing and we've got this and we've got to ask the five questions and then we've got this data feedback. I'm like, this is not going to help us. Then what you realize is what you've seen, you need to let it digest. So normally afterwards, we'll go and have a discussion, just an open-ended discussion about what people have seen. Observation one, what do you think? And you have a rally, hit the ball back and forward between people. And then you have observation two, hit the ball back and forward. And then you sort of write the next day, your key learnings. And so the puzzle kind of shifts and changes over time. It's really interesting. And what I've come to believe is that what you can learn is a function of what you know. So the more you know, the more you can learn. What you can do is a function of what you've done. The more you've done, the more you can do. And so you don't kind of asymptote out. It's the opposite. Each time you go back, the learning should be bigger, which is kind of scary, but also kind of <laughs> awesome because the world never gets boring. Why is it scary? Because you realize you're wrong by an increasing margin almost every time you go, right? <laughs> and you, you kind of would like to be less wrong, but... At the same stage, like you're, you're, but it's funny because you, you're also helping more. So you're more wrong, as in further away from necessarily where you would hope to be, but you're also helping more, which sounds like it shouldn't be able to be possible. It's like an identity break or something, but is. Mm. Like one version of maturity for me is the percentage of others you can understand. So let's say there's 100% of humanity and that you can understand you, or actually you kind of understand you well in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, but then you represent... <laughs> 1% of humanity. And so you, you go through time and your ability to empathize gets broader. 
we went and did an observation last week at a school and you're trying to understand how this teacher looks at the world and what they see. And I fundamentally a year ago would not have been able to see that. And this changes very materially what I think the best way to help them is. And so it's not that we're not helping now, it's just that we can help more, Mm. but we're further away from what I thought it was. Yeah. How do you stop that from impacting your imagination? Like I imagine that with that increasing understanding that you're wrong more than you are right, how do you stop that from impacting your day-to-day job and unleashing your creativity? Yeah, so to me, an idea is where you have an instant problem identification and solution generation at the same time. I've never had that occur. Maybe there are some people out there that has this. What I have is problem identification. Then I wrestle with the problem for an extended period of time and I slowly come from level zero solution to level one solution. And then if I wrestle with some more to level two solution and then level three solution. Sometimes I'm like, well, level three is enough put it there and then move on to the sort of next one. And so to me, the biggest problem is figuring out what the problem is and that's problem identification. Then I suppose metacognition is how good you are at systematically thinking about building solutions, Mm. not just hoping. And so I like to believe that each unit of trying to come up with a solution to the problem has become more productive on average over time. Not everyone, you know, is always better than last time, but the average is improving. And so to me, imagination is not a word I would use. It is... How good are you at identifying the problem? Stress to me is like often time pressure stress. You've got something that's due. And so you you don't give yourself time to think about it enough. You just jam out a solution. Mm. And normally that's lower quality, e.g. bigger blind spots, bigger ego distortions, but you can't see them at the time (laughs) by definition. To me, creativity is more of a process. It's not something that is magic. And the main way to screw it up is to not have enough time or to not be trying to find what you don't yet know. And what's your creative process then? Perhaps you can share a framework for that process. It depends. Like, so if you just take, I don't know, schools. So it's like we're trying to improve education. Okay, so we need to figure out what that actually looks like. So let's just take mathematics. There's real-world mathematics or there is academic mathematics. So real-world mathematics, everybody needs. Academic mathematics only need if you're going to be a math professor or an engineering or something. So... Okay, well, we're going to build the year seven resource to help get as many people to be able to do real world maths as possible. And so you go through and you look at all of the tests that you can find. And then you find the questions in the tests that you think are a reflection of real world maths. And you find the questions that aren't a reflection of real world maths. And then you build this massive data bank of questions. And then you associate these questions with the different actual dot points from the curriculum. So many resources I see are just actualizing the curriculum. They take the dot point and then the people that are writing it try to think about what that should be just on their kind of intuition. Whereas we're not using intuition. (laughs) We are systematically mining all known tests to find the best actualization of real world maths and then reversing out how to get there. Mm. So that's effectively, what's your problem? Well, the problem is real world maths. Okay, great. What is that? Well, it could be, it's infinite, right? Mm. We have to shrink it to something extraordinarily tangible. Okay, let's make it as tangible as humanly possible by mining every single test possible and choosing the questions that we like and getting rid of the questions that we don't like and then associating them with every dot point and then going and building a path backwards. So that's like one component. The other component is we want to allow change. We don't want to force change. We are trying to find where teachers are at and to give them high quality things of the version they're already asking for. Or if we're doing change, we're not blowing up their existing use case. We're allowing this new thing which is normally one step from where they are and they can do what they're doing now or they can try the new thing if they want. We are building a product 
that encompasses how they're teaching now and allows change by one step, not 10 steps away. And so I don't know if that sort of makes sense. It's like, okay, these are what I would consider to be significantly more sophisticated ways of thinking about helping. Mm. So we're after the quantum of improvement to education, not necessarily the maximum amount if they did exactly as we would hope. It looks very unadventurous, some of the stuff that we build by design. Mm. It's very carefully not changing things. If you require a large amount of professional development to get someone to use it, often they won't. It's just in the too difficult bucket. If you don't give them back time, it takes more time. It doesn't matter how much more valuable it is. Often it's too difficult. <laughs> teachers often do the easiest thing. And that's before you get to students. And that's because teachers have a lot on their plate. You know, they're not saying that they're lazy. It's just that they often have way too much. So if you give them something which is more time consuming, it's like not too difficult. So I suppose that's quite a long answer. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. So in our investment process, we ask a couple of questions. For example, how is this product 10 times better than the status quo? Mm. How does this product fundamentally change the user journey? Mm. How do you calibrate those two questions with making a change added rollo, but even more broadly? How does this change the user flow? Was that was it? Yeah, the user journey. Well, this is interesting. Like, I don't want to change it at all. <laughs> a good book is like, I don't know, it costs the same 10, 15 bucks. It's just words on a page. They're black and white. You know, there's no colors, no images, right? And a good book, when you read, you go to bed, you can't put it down, you can't go to sleep. A bad book, you can't stay awake. Literally the opposite. Mm. There is no change in user journey, right? User flow. It's literally read the words in order. There's, there's nothing different. And so to me, this is sort of the magic trick. How do you make an existing resource effing awesome, you know, where they can't put it down? without needing any behavior change, without needing any new money with inside the existing curriculum. And I think that it's possible. So a book on almost any topic can change your life, open your mind to new ideas and be very, very you know, hard to put down or the exact opposite. And so I'm not saying that behavior change couldn't do this, but if you're asking for large behavior change, I often think you're putting an impediment to make it significantly more difficult for this actually to occur. So we are after the largest improvement to education, and if you can get that with zero behavior change, so if, if the ceiling for improvement is much lower with zero behavior change than with behavior change, okay, well, maybe you have to do behavior change. Mm. But at the current time, I'm unaware that any different approach, whether it's direct instruction, inquiry-based learning, I mean, digital, adaptive, non-adaptive, to me, I actually think the quality of the content significantly matters more than those other changes. But also that if you are doing those changes, you need to train teachers and train students and that is often too much. Mm. So we are after the largest received or actualized improvement, not necessarily the largest possible improvement where you lose 75% of people along the way because the behavior change is too large. I might rephrase the question then. How are you making the student experience 10 times better? So one of the things I talk about is like an emotional resonance taxonomy. So love, like, indifferent, dislike, hate. So your favorite t-shirt you love, your worst t-shirt you hate, your favorite song you love, the worst song you hate, the favorite meal you love, the worst meal you hate, the favorite person you love, the worst person you hate. So almost everything can be love, like, indifferent, dislike, or hate. And unfortunately, I think for many students, like maths, you know, science, whatever, humanities, is like dislike or hate. And I don't think it needs to be that. It can be like or love. And so to me, the end outcome is what, you know, Maslow says, self-actualizing, or what Keegan says, self-authoring, self-transforming or Barrett, which is another model, which is that reaching the transformation point. And so to me, the purpose of school is so that you can teach yourself, so that you can actually teach yourself new skills. 
or that you can have discovered the love of learning. Love of learning is learning things for fun, which is teaching yourself new things. And so to me, if you look at what Keegan says, he's a Harvard developmental psychologist in the developed world, so places like America and Australia, roughly one third of people get to the point where they can teach themselves new things. It's not that they have to be taught something, they have to get the teacher teach you maths or go to the university degree to get taught accounting or whatever. I think one definition of what we're trying to do is to get as many people to this point as possible. And it's not just a nice to do, it's also really important because all the jobs that are non-repetitive are being replaced by machines, physical or mental. Mm. And so if you don't have people that can do non-repetitive things, aka teach themselves new things, aka have learned the love of learning, then they won't be able to have a job. And then you have what Yuval Harari refers to as the useless class. And then you have to have a universal basic income to, to sort of help them. So to me, I think one part of what we're doing, not the only part, is trying to have all the stuff be far more easy to understand, but not just that with metacognition, and also teach people to apply things, new things. And if you're able to do that in lots of little places, in mass, in science, in humanities, et cetera, the cumulative outcome of that is that the percentage of people that can innovate or that have learned the love of learning or that can teach themselves new skills is much higher. Mm. And then you can do anything. Once you're able to innovate, you can teach yourself any new thing. I would hope that we are able to take this from roughly a third, which is what Keegan says it is today, to sort of 80 or 90% by the end of year 10. And if that's the case, we have fundamentally changed all of humanity. So everything is downstream from human thought and 80 or 90% of people are able to innovate, then the outcome of what they can do is seismic. So this is the most upstream thing. We do need renewable energy, definitely. You know, We do need all those other things. But if we have humans that don't have any more mental abilities than they have today, it doesn't necessarily matter. So to me, the next great problem to solve is unlocking the capacity of human minds. So 80 or 90% of people should be able to do this but only a third of people in developed countries can today. And to me, we don't need any more time or money or new curriculums to do it. I'm not saying those things wouldn't help, but I don't think that they are precluding us from getting there. And so the goal is to take the existing curriculums and the existing schools and the existing teachers and just put higher quality food through it in a way that students don't dislike or hate, but like or love. And that the fundamental outcome of that is the change of everything. Mm. So that's the goal effectively. Mm. You mentioned that Ed Rollo's mission is to improve education. Yeah. How do you measure that mission? So it's, it's hard. <laughs> there are many sort of things and some of them you can see shorter term. So for instance, if you have the best resource in market and you don't have number one market share, then maybe you don't have the best resource in market. But that's obviously not the only thing. We're not going after market share. So one is like market share and retention of schools. Two is looking at existing tests. So some tests are good, some tests are not good. I think some tests like PISA and NAPLAN do a good job of measuring the fundamentals. So like fundamental literacy, fundamental numeracy, not everything in education, but if you're not doing the fundamentals well, it's hard to believe you're doing the higher order stuff well. So we'd want to do them. Engagement in school. So for instance, how many kids are sticking past year 10? How many kids are actually looking at enjoying things and getting to jobs, you know, which are able to do innovation and other stuff? To me, there's no one metric that defines things. You're trying to look at, a broader sway of them and to see if they're helping you feel like you're moving more forward than backwards. Mm. I've seen an evolution in your product and that evolution of product has been how much time you spend with students. Mm. How important is the time that you spend with students and how does that inform what you should do next? Absolutely crucial. <laughs> I think the more that you think without seeing your products and we also look at other products being used by students and teachers, the further you get away from reality. 
And so my sort of rule of thumb is if you've been away for one day, then you're, you know, 1% diluted, two days, 2%, 3%, there's 4%. Mm. You have to systematically all the time, ideally every day, but that's not really possible, every week, go and do observations of teachers and students using your product. And then you see things. So a unit of thinking, a unit of building products, a unit of observing, a unit of synthesizing and round and round. And so that's like what I would call a cycle of learning. And you need to get externally validated units of learning. And that can only happen by going outside. I recently heard you mention that you're standing on the shoulders of what you built before. Hmm. How have you found yourself building textbooks for students? Yeah, so the goal was to become the core resource. This traditionally is called a textbook. We call the Mustangs internally. Mustang means a collection of resources. So some of them are printed, some of them are digital. And we're agnostic to how you have it. So you can have it purely digital if you want. Good quality core resources are used for, say, mathematics for the average teacher, maybe to influence 80% of, of time learning. And a bad resource might be 10 or 20%. So our goal is to build good quality core resources that are therefore used very, very heavily and therefore influence a significant amount of time and to be agnostic to how they are served to students or teachers to allow them to use it in whichever way they want to understand how they're teaching now and to give them what they're teaching now, but at higher quality, and then to build something that is one step from where they are. So there's always some change allowed in the product. We don't burn any of their existing user experience journeys. We allow it with higher quality and we allow something new if they want to do it. They can put their toe in the water. And so this means that we hopefully get really, really strong traction because there isn't large changes needed. I hope that makes some sense. It does. And what what is the, to put it bluntly, what is the innovation here? Well, the main one, I think, is quality. And this is not just some sort of flash in the pan. You manage to get the best author or something. We build content technology, which is three components, language, recipe, and machine, which is a way to systemize much of what we do so that we can stand upon our own shoulders of the past and get systematically better. Mm. And it, it's hard to sort of look at. So, for instance, question quality. How do you build higher quality questions? Okay, well, we're going to go and find every known exam and we're going to go through and systematically say which questions do we think are good and which ones are not good. And then after we've got hundreds and hundreds of questions, we're going to relate all those questions to the different curriculum dot points. And then we're going to see how these questions get broken down and we're going to genome them or fundamentally understand what their base DNA pairs are and then choose how to build them and then layer them together. And so this is now a, a quite a systematic process that we believe allows us to make significantly higher quality questions than if you're just winging it. And that's for questions. We do the same thing for theory and for activities, et cetera. And we want to make them more delicious and more nutritious. So I say your mind is a place of having ideas, not storing ideas. So you want to build a custom fit mental exoskeleton or Iron Man suit, which you get into, which gives you superpowers. You know, so Duncan plus computer is better than Duncan by himself. Content creator plus content technology is better than content creator by themselves. And so we have tried to build what we consider to be massively valuable mental exoskeletons, which level up people's abilities. You mentioned earlier that we want to make more students love to learn. You also just mentioned delicious. Mm. Like what, what is wrong with the status quo that you can even begin to move the needle in the first place and make it delicious? So there's a book on wizards from JK Rowling that people love. And if Duncan wrote a book on wizards, I don't know if anyone <laughs> would read it, right? So it's, it's not that wizards are always great or always boring. During year seven mathematics, in year seven, I'd say 80 or 90% of the curriculum in Australia is applicable to everyday people or everyday you know, problems can therefore be interesting or delicious and nutritious. And so our job or our attempt is to try to make it as delicious and nutritious as possible. 
So if something is applicable in your real life, it has the possibility of being interesting. But if something is not able to be understood, then you can't use it. So if you can't understand, nothing is interesting. We spend a significant amount of time trying to make things much, much easier to understand. So we're trying to find how does this dot point, how can you apply it in real life? And then how do we make it as easy to understand as possible? And therefore motivation, which is a core component of school, can be much higher than it would otherwise be. So that's sort of one micro example. Mm. One way this problem could be tackled is by hyper-personalization. Mm. People are different. Some people love wizards. Some people hate them. Mm. That joy is going to be different from student to student. How did you think about the personalization route versus the general, we just need to legitimately improve the structure and system that's at play? Yeah, so I'm definitely not saying that things can't be personalized and they, they definitely can. It's just how do you build something that teachers and students know how to use and understand easily? So the first version of this for say year seven maths was how do we build something that has a low floor and a high ceiling? So how do we build something that is as broadly applicable as possible? And then the, the other part of personalization, how do you know what to personalize to somebody? So it's probable that a highly personalized thing is better than a low personalized thing, but how do you know how to personalize well? And that is a very difficult problem. So instead of that, to begin with, this other of how do you make ideally the one size fits all, not the one size fits none? And that's probably impossible. But I think you can take it from, like, I don't know, say strong resources now might be one size fits 50% to one size fits 90%. Mm. We've tried to do that. And so this means that you can make most concepts really accessible, but applicable in a really broad range. Again, it's not that well, you've got the Harry Potter version for Mason and you've got the Harry Potter version for Duncan. And imagine if I read Mason's version, I would hate it. And if he read mine. And so to me, it's the same thing. This book, you know, you know, so many people have read, how can we make something that almost everybody loves? And so that's a different problem. I'm not saying that personalization can't be done. I'm just saying, however, that non-personalization, one size can actually fit done well. I think the vast majority of people, mm. I want to look more into the personalization route in the future. It's just that at the current time, what's the best outcome you can get with zero personalization? And I think it's wildly higher than the existing outcomes. Mm. I mean, perhaps this is the first step of getting that earned secret into personalization. Mm. And how do you see education changing? I don't necessarily know. <laughs> Woodrow Wilson, who was president during World War One, said it's easier to move a cemetery than it is to change a curriculum. And they had had at the time, I think, 30 or 40 years of the curriculums in the US and they couldn't change them then. Yeah. I'm not saying that if you gave me a blank sheet of paper today and said, write a curriculum, I'd write what is there. I don't almost know anybody that would, but they haven't been able to change them. So we are working with inside the bounds that exist of course, we look at the curriculum. Of course, we're trying to cover the curriculum. But the curriculum might be, say, a 10-page document and we make a 1,000-page book. So there's the other 99% that we need to figure out. So we're trying to figure out how to actualize that 99% in the best way possible. The same time and the same curriculum can be used for massively better outcomes. Mm -hmm. One of those outcomes is, okay, well, how many people have discovered the love of learning? If you discover the love of learning, you're learning for fun. You're teaching yourself learning. And if you can teach yourself new things, then you're kind of free. You can do something that's never been done before. And I'm not saying you wouldn't want more money or new curriculums, but if you're waiting for that, I think you might be waiting a long time. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. we're trying to figure out how we can change everything without needing anything. I love that. And if I'm a parent, which I'm not, but I am nevertheless remarkably curious about how children are changing and how parents can help unlock that love for learning that you're describing is that do you have any suggestions or advice oh this is interesting <laughs> look i'm not a parent either and so this is you know the thing to me 
I do think that the world can be interesting. So an 18-year-old Duncan knew almost nothing about the world. And if you don't know anything about something, it's pretty boring. Normally, the more you know about something, the more interesting it is. Normally, the better you are at something, the more rewarding it is. And so one of the hacks that I've come to believe is just to start learning about something, anything. So if your child is interested in something, I'd try to, they say, push from behind, don't pull from in front, feed that interest. And then as they level up, it'll go from one thing. So they're like comics. Okay, now they're like comics. Now they get into sci-fi. Okay, now they get into sci-fi. Now they might get into a bit of science. Okay, now they're into a bit of science. Now they're into a bit of Lego, whatever it is. Now they're into a bit of engineering, et cetera. And so to me, most things lead from one thing to the other. And some people find something interesting. So I don't know, so the family and their kid is like four, loves Spider-Man. Cool. I think there's little Spider-Man books you can buy. So I think it was Spider-Man from movies. Cool. Get Spider-Man from the books. Now read the books and they might be more interested in learning reading. Mm. Okay. Now find something in there. And it's like, okay, we've well, got bitten by spiders or whatever. Okay. Well, let's go and have a little bit of a look on YouTube or something. And let's have a little bit of a look at toxins or something. Okay. Now there's something in, you know, the science thing. Okay. Let's go there. Okay. Now let's also buy the Spider-Man Lego thing. Okay. Let's build that. And now let's go and have some things. So to me, you just find something and you try to get it to branch out or spider out into other things. This normally can lead to them finding stuff interesting. And so I think just try to foster that interest. I love that. I love that so much. I, I might zoom out into the future. What do you think education will look like in a decade, 20, maybe even 50 years if it's if it's that hard to change the nuts and bolts? Yeah, it's interesting. Are you optimistic or pessimistic? I'd love to get your thoughts. No, I'm extraordinarily optimistic. In the beginning, it was like, oh yeah, we need to make fully adaptive and everyone needs to have this in VR goggles and change all the curriculums and put philosophy on there, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not saying that those things wouldn't help. Maybe it will look very different. However, history shows that there hasn't been much change in education. And my underlying presumption is that they haven't been able to change the curriculums and they haven't been able to change the, you know, this. And so I'm just assuming it's staying the same. I'm not saying that that's what I would want. We are then trying to say, what is the best outcome we can deliver if things don't really change inside this? And the best outcome isn't just okay, it's awesome. Because the best people today have found out how to love learning and building new things. And so the best outcome is as good as we can need it to be. We just need a far higher portion of students to be able to get there. And so that's what we're focused on. And you said we're focused on, you wrote a blog, I think it was called like the difference between terrible and different, terrible and terrific teams. And terrific teams, yeah. Yeah, you, <laughs> you guys have grown from, I don't know where you were at for the Series B, but yeah, now you're at 200. 200 people roughly now, yeah. How have you managed to keep everyone at, at the level of terrific, if possible? <laughs> Well, you can't. You try, but you can't. And I mean, I mean, like, I have good days and bad days like everyone, right? So I am sometimes terrible and sometimes terrific. But over time, what you're trying to do is have the positive sumness of the company grow. So each person you add needs to increase the amount of things the company can do, not decrease, if that makes sense. And not just increase like each one. So 201 is, you know, one person more 202, ideally in an exponential fashion. And so one of the ways we think about this is how do you increase the positive sumness of the company and the positive sumness of the culture? So to me, this shifts and it changes because every team is different. And so just like, you know, how do you have a whatever, AFL premiership winning team? There's not one formula. And so what, you know, Adelaide are trying and what Geelong are trying are two separate things that both could work. And so we're not trying to say that you have to do this this way or that way. We're trying to say that there's probably commonality, much more commonality in what not to do, but there's a lot of diversity in how to do things well. And we try to share different ideas to different places and get out of the way of different people. To me, it's about responsibility, not reportability. And as a culture, like culture, 
I'll often is monoculture in my mind. There's 10 values. You must repeat them. And I'm like, no culture <laughs> is uniform in some ways, diverse in others and always changing. So even the uniform things. And this is an interesting puzzle. So an example is like, I think when my parents were born in Melbourne, there was hangings in Pentridge, which is the, we used to be the main jail on St Kilda Road. And then they said that you don't want to kill anyone. And now we have legalized euthanasia. So we've gone from the state killing people to no one killing anyone to asking how to kill ourselves. That's some pretty hardcore culture change. Mm. I would hope that Ed Rollo is able to undertake similar levels of culture change and to also allow diversity or plurality that sits inside of the company. And so we are not trying to say there's one way to be terrific or that there's one way to be terrible. We're just trying to hopefully be two steps forward, one step back. And how do you keep track of that change? It's impossible. <laughs> In some respects, each of the sort of blogs and there's lots of people writing internally is a cultural artifact. But just like so is whatever the Sydney Morning Herald or the Age or you know whatever it is. And so is there somebody that keeps track of the culture in Australia? So I don't know, Albo's come in as prime minister and I think it's been a net improvement, right? Yeah. And they say that the culture of the country has shifted. Is that because he wrote his 10-page memo and they put on the wall the 10 cultural things and now everyone's following them and it's just been a, a shift? Like, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm not that I'm aware of. And so to me, there's an awfully an oversimplistic view, I believe, of what culture should be. What often comes out as monoculture. It's like, oh yeah, here are the 10 commandments. I mean, there's been places <laughs> like that in the past. And I'm not sure it was the greatest system. And so to me... The only constant is change. You're trying to set up the entire business to be able to shift and for people to be part of what that is and for different types of cultures to sit in different places or plurality. Mm. So basically effectively a mess, but a beautiful mess, hopefully. (laughs) That's so crucial because how do you organize a team of 200 people or organize thoughts in a way so people know directionally what those values or Ten Commandments are in such a way where they're not walking around like headless chickens. Well, so I sort of think the idea of Ten Commandments is antithetical. And so we don't necessarily have that. And so anything that is that important is enshrined in law, like no bullying people, no stealing, et cetera, right? And so we don't have like, oh, yeah, you can't bully people. That's one of our commandments. I'm like, if you need to be told that, out, right? So to me, the sort of high level thing is like we are looking to improve education. Cool, we're making progress. Here's how we're doing this. There need to be some people who are trying to articulate this at a high level. For instance, I'm writing these blogs each week and I'll have a monthly sort of presentation to talk about certain things. But they see the evolution of stuff. And then ideally, they can see how what they're doing is helping with making progress there. And some people have a lot of autonomy. So basically, you start with minimal autonomy. Uh, Trust is built, faith is given. We do not give faith. You can build trust with us, and then you get more autonomy. And the more autonomy you have, you do what you think is right. So some people have 100% autonomy. And I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what I'm doing. Not most people. But ideally, as many people as possible have as much autonomy as possible. But that is built through building trust. Well, how do you build trust with me? I'm like, figure it out. If you can't figure out how to build trust with me, you don't get trust. There's not some system which you follow the process. I'm like, you need to find a way to demonstrate that you are trustworthy with those around you. And then as you do, the percentage of your job, which you get to choose what to do or autonomy goes up. And over time, hopefully the positive sum of this happens. And then you're doing the same thing with that. And we're all sort of regulating each other in some way. Yeah, I hope that makes some sense. It does. And if I'm on that journey trying to build your trust, I have obvious strengths and weaknesses. How should I think about allocating time to improving one or the other or should i be doing both it depends on what you're trying to do so you need to figure out how you're trying to help let's say then i'm we can get better again let's say i'm trying to improve my thought and perhaps i'm in the product team if you're trying to improve thought then i would say that you need reading thinking talking writing building user testing and just cycle through those things Mm. 
performance feedback systems often push people towards the center. So there's like strengths and weaknesses. You know, you're not allowed to have weaknesses or something, right? And so then you write in there, what did you do well? What is, and you have to make progress on them when you report back in six months. And if you didn't make progress, then it's harder for you to get a promotion or something. And so to me, I don't know, you look at the strongest, you know, I suppose people that have made the world better. So to me, it's like how positive some is your company. So as an example, I think Apple was very positive. Some their phones are good and bad, but much more good than bad. You know, Elon, you know, look at what they've done for moving, you know, sustainable transport and energy. These people are not what you would necessarily call well-rounded. They have crazy weaknesses, but out of control strengths. And the S&P 500, the largest companies, they track the 100 top people. And I saw this stat, the average one, has 10% of the top people leave a year. Do you know what it was in Tesla? 50, 50%, right? And so if you look at some companies, they say, well, that's very bad. And I'm like, no, no, you want the highest number of people applying. So Tesla and SpaceX are the number one place you want to apply. And you do not want to keep around bad people. Mm. You want to get rid of them. Mm. And maybe there is some good people, but it's hard to argue against the progress. And so I think that Elon is a very particular person and that working for him would be, I suppose, some people's best thing on earth and some people's worst thing on earth. Mainly, you are trying to build yourself to help deliver progress more. And so you need to know, like, we're improving education. Okay, what does that mean? And progress solves all known problems. You are not necessarily trying to be the world's most user-friendly person. You're not necessarily trying to have zero weaknesses. You're just trying to help with progress more than not. But that also means, like, if you are very embracing internally and people can't work with you, that's not good. You know, so that's, that's a version of progress. So the way I think about it is trying to improve yourself to make progress but also trying to relax, you know, and have time where you're not improving yourself, et cetera. So that means sometimes strengths, sometimes weaknesses, and each person is different. Where does empathy sit in that equation of progress? Well, everywhere. <laughs> so I don't know, with Tesla, like their North Star is cheaper cars that are more reliable or cheaper per, you know, kilometer from energy, right? It's an objective third-party metric. You can align the entire company around that super easy. For Ed Rollo, the metric is you know, say mass, better real world math skills or more chance of people reaching the transformation point or being able to reach the level of learning or being able to teach themselves something. That's much, much, much harder to measure than car costs cheaper per, you know, kilometer, right? If you aren't doing a lot of observing teachers and students using your products and other products, then it's very difficult to know whether you think your products are moving the game forward. You need to empathize with the broadest portion of students and teachers possible for us to be able to begin to have a view about whether we're helping. But in some companies like Tesla, that is not required like at all. You know, it's SpaceX, cost per ton, you know, to, to orbit. Empathy zero, you know. <laughs> we are engineers, we're going to get this thing. And so having said which, you know, understanding how to work internally. So for us, for Ed Rollo, I should say, extraordinarily important. I wish we could do a five-part series. <laughs> Hopefully we will over time. Sure. But... Thank you so much for joining me on this episode. It's been epic. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. If you left with more energy than when you started, we'd be super grateful. If you liked, subscribed, left a review, even shared it with a friend. In case you want to keep in touch, share feedback or even a pitch deck, I'll leave my blink card in the show notes for you to get in touch. Thank you so much for listening once again, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Godspeed. Godspeed.